was um, in regards to events that took place, I don't know, 1500 B.C. in that area. Today, we are called not to get too close to one another. Since the beginning of the year, the, the word has been stay away from each other. Isolate yourself. Or if you have to be around somebody, social distance. There's a phrase that we've never heard before until maybe beginning of this year. Social distance. Stay away. Don't get close. And if you do get close, have a barrier between you and the other person. A mask. Put a mask on. Don't get close. But if you do have to get close, make sure there's a barrier between you and the other person lest you die. I'm hearing that if you these things, um, that if we don't follow these steps, many people will die. But not only that, make sure you purify yourself. And we got hand sanitizer and soap and all that stuff. And you're supposed to wash your hands for, I don't know, what, like 30 seconds? Is that what it is? Uh, sing the birthday song twice? Something along those lines? So, if we're going to gather together, first of all, you shouldn't gather together. Separate yourself and isolate. If you do gather together, don't try to get too close and make sure there's a barrier between you and the other person and make sure you're purified. I don't know. It sounds a lot like the book of Numbers to me. It sounds a lot like what we're going to be talking about today as we consider chapter 3 in the book of Numbers. And before we get into chapter 3 of the book of Numbers, let me give you a little bit of overview where, a review of where we've been from chapters 1 and 2. Number starts out in a very challenging way because it begins with a census with a lot of names and a lot of numbers, and we always ask why. Well, one of the things we discovered in having all of these names and numbers was the census was who was able to go to war, who was able to go to battle. And so we saw the people who were able to be counted, they stood up and were counted as those who were able to fight for the community as they traveled from redemption to the land of promise. Those who were able to fight and repel all threats. They stood for one another. But ultimately, not only do they stand for one another, but one of the main things that we see about this community is the centrality of God. God is in their midst. That the whole camp uh, of this covenant community is organized in such a way that the thing that's in the middle of the community is the presence of God. God is central to everything they do. And so that sounds like really good news. Yeah, God is central. God's in our midst. But God is holy. And this holy God who dwells in their midst cannot be approached by an unholy person. Defiled people were prohibited from approaching a holy God in their defilement. To do so would bring their death. And so... Here's the problem. You want God in your midst, but you can't approach, but you can't have God in your midst. So what God has done is he protects his community, and he does that by putting a fence around himself, a barrier between himself and the people. This fence was known as the Levites. This barrier that protected a unholy people from the holy God were the Levites. And so we see that God has arranged the camp in such a way where he is in the middle, and he is set apart. He is separate from the community that one did not just go and just come into the presence of God at any time. They needed to come through the Levites, come through the fence, who would offer purification for them so that then they, that individual, could be um, made right and could come into the presence of God. There was a fence. That's where we've been. There's where I hope to go today. I want to continue focusing on the Levites. In fact, today and next week, we will focus on the Levites. And we want to look at what was the task of the Levites, what did they do? And then hopefully we'll be able to bring some relevance. How does a 3,500-year-old event had anything to do with the modern culture. Well, I hope we will see um, the continuity between the covenant community that Moses was leading in the wilderness of Sinai to um, this covenant community gathered here this day. We're going to focus on the Levites, and one of the things we're going to really focus on is that um, their task was to guard and to carry the tabernacle. Their task was to guard and carry the tabernacle. And chapter, chapter 3 is really about guarding the, cha- the tabernacle. Chapter 4 next week we'll talk about um, carrying it, but right now today we want to talk about how the Levites were to guard the tabernacle to protect, um, not so much the tabernacle, but to protect the people from coming near to God in an unholy condition, which would result in their death. See, the next thing we want to talk about is not only the Levites as guards of the tabernacle, but we want to deal with the issue of God. See, God is not like us. And I think one of our big issues is that we drag God down to look a lot like us. We assume he's like us. But God is not like us. And that is so clear in the book of, of Numbers. He is, I like this word, other. And probably one of the more serious mistakes that we can make is to, is to relegate God to our level, to figure that he is just like us, maybe a little bit more superior than us, or a perfect version of us. But he is none of those. He is God Almighty and he is other. He is not like us. He is not even like the ideal version of us. He is God. And he is holy. And if we are to draw near to this God who is other, we draw near to him on his terms. That has not changed one bit. We still come to God on his terms. 
We go near to him on his terms, and by the way, that is for our good. So if you will, I'm going to read chapter 3, and uh, follow along with me, and then we will consider um, this passage of text. Numbers chapter 3, listen, to the inerrant word of God. These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests, whom he ordained to serve as priests. But Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. So Eliezer and Ithamar served as priests in the lifetime of Aaron their father. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting, as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, and keep guard over the people of Israel, as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and to his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall put Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel, instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn of Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, List the sons of Levi by fathers' houses and by clans. Every male from a month old and upward you shall list. So Moses listed them according to the word of the Lord, as he was commanded. And these were the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. These are the names of the sons of Gershon by their clans, Libni and Shimei. These are the sons of Kohath by their clans, Amram, Itzhar, Hebron, and Uziel. And the sons of Merari by their clans, Mali and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites by their fathers' houses. To Gershon belonged the clan of the Libnites and the clan of the Shimeites. These were the clans of the Gershonites. Their listing, according to all the, all the males from the north, old, and upward, was 7,500. The clans of the Gershonites were to camp behind the tabernacle on the west with Eliasaph, the son of Lael, as the chief of the father's house of the Gershonites. And the guard duty of the son of Gershon and the tent of meeting involved the tabernacle, the tent with its covering, the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the hangings of the court, the screen for the door, and the court and that is all around the tabernacle and the altar and its court, all the service connected with these. To Kohath belonged the clan of the Amorites and the clan of the Etzrahites, and the clan of the Heberites, and the clan of the Utzelites. These are the clans of the Kohathites, according to the number of all the males from the month old and upward. There were 8,600 keeping guard over the sanctuary. The clans of the sons of Kohath were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle, with Eliasaphan, the son of Utziel, as the chief of the father's house of the clans of the Kohathites. And their guard duty involved the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the vessels, and all the sanctuary with the priest minister, and the screen, and all the service connected with these. And Eliasaphan, the son of Aaron, the priest, was to be chief over the chiefs of the Levites, and to have oversight of those who kept guard over the sanctuary. To Morari belong the clan of the Malachites, 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 I'm sorry, and the clan of the Mushites. These are the clans of Morari. Their listing, according to the number of all the males from one month old and upward, are 6,200. And the chief of the father's house of the clans of Morari was Zoriel and Abihel. And they were to camp on the north side of the tabernacle. And, on, and the appointed guard duty of the sons of Morari involved the frames of the tabernacle, bars, the pillars, the bases, and all their accessories, all the service connected with these, also the pillars around the court, with their bases and pegs and cords. Those were to camp before the tabernacle in the east, before the tent of meeting toward the sunrise with Moses and Aaron and his sons, guarding the sanctuary itself, to protect the people of Israel. And any outsider who came near was to be put to death. All those listed among the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron listed at the commandment of the Lord by clans, all the males from a month old and upward, were 22,000. And the Lord said to Moses, List all the firstborn males of, of the people of Israel, from a month old and upward, taking the number of their names, and you shall take the Levites from me. I am the Lord. Instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites, instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of the people of Israel. So Moses listed all the firstborn among the people of Israel, as the Lord commanded him. And all the firstborn males, according to the number of names, from a month old and upward, were listed at 22,273. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. And as the redemption price for the 273 of the firstborn of the people of Israel, over and above the number of the male Levites, you shall take five shekels per head. You shall take them according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel of twenty dollars, and give the money to Aaron and his sons as a redemption price to those who are over. So Moses took the redemption money from those who were over and above those redeemed by the Levites. From the firstborn of the people of Israel took the money, 1,365 shekels, by the shekel of the sanctuary, and Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons according to the word of the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. All right. First thing we want to do is, uh, I think what I want to try to do is help us distinguish uh, between priests and Levites, because there is a difference. Um, 
all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Okay? So if you get that, we're probably good. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. So there were priests, and they were basically the family. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. They were priests. Let's talk about what their function was. What did the priests do? The priests actually were the ones who served in the sanctuary. They served in the tabernacle. So they were the ones, the priests were the ones who would offer sacrifice. They would be the ones who would minister in the holy place, perhaps by replacing the incense and lighting the, uh, the candles that were in there and maintaining the bread of presence. And so, and then, you know, of course, only the high priest would enter into the holy of holies once a year. And so the priests were the ones who were actually interceding and teaching and um, performing the duties of sacrifice and of the Jewish, uh, following God's commands in regards to sacrifice and offerings. That was the job of the priests. So they ministered in the tabernacle, they offered sacrifice, and they were the main teachers um, for the people of Israel. Now, let me just mention that being a priest was a very high calling and perhaps even a dangerous calling. It was kind of a do-or-die job. There are some jobs that um, they may be really important, but a mistake won't result in somebody dying, right? So, like, we had a bike shop, and if you came in and I sold you the wrong tire size, that would be an inconvenience, but it would not result in death. Now, anybody, I don't know if we have any brain surgeons in here, if you're a brain surgeon and you make a mistake, well, that's quite a bit different. The priests were the same way. They could not make a mistake. This was a do-or-die ministry. And in fact, we see this highlighted very clearly as we began this book because, or began this chapter because it talks about two individuals, two sons of Levi, or two sons of Aaron. Aaron had four sons. But by the time this was written, two of them are dead. The two sons are Nadab and Abihu. And we read about them in the book of Leviticus. And we can read about them in Leviticus 10 and then also go over to Leviticus 16. And we'll get some more information there. But Nadab and Abihu were authorized priests. They were authorized to enter into the tabernacle and to perform priestly duties. The Bible tells us that they went in and they offered strange fire before the Lord. More likely, um, there's all sorts of ideas about what was this strange fire. They had some sort of incense burner, and that, that incense would have been um, burning. Perhaps they, they uh, mixed the incense um, incorrectly. But the bottom line is this. There's all sorts of ideas about what happened to Nadab and Abihu, and I'm not going to go into that right now. We'll, we'll talk about them a little bit later on in the book of Numbers. But for right now, know this. One thing that all of the theories of what Nadab and Abihu did still boil down to the fact that they approached God on their own terms. That God was very clear. This is what you do. This is how I am to be worshipped. And they said, well, we'll just kind of come and we'll cut some corners, and we will approach God on our own terms. And God would have none of that and struck them down. They approached God on their own terms. They disregarded the holiness of God. They did as they pleased, and they bore the penalty for approaching God on their own terms. And so as our chapter begins, Aaron has four sons, Nadab and Abihu, who are dead. And so he has these two other sons who are going to uh, be the priests uh, for the people uh, in the covenant community. So that's what the priests did. And it was a very important job, and it was not one that you could take lightly. That's the function of the priests. The family of the priests is that they're all descended from Aaron. Aaron was also from the tribe of Levi, but God, for his own purposes and by his own sovereign will, set this particular family apart to serve as the role of the priest. And great privilege also brought great responsibility. So that's what the priests did. They were strictly from the line of Aaron. The Levites served a different function. Their function was to serve Aaron. Look at verse 6. Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest. They shall minister to him. Verse 9, and you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. So you have Aaron and his uh, sons serving in the temple or serving in the tabernacle, offering sacrifices, teaching the people, and the Levites basically ministered to the priests. They were to care for the tabernacle and they were to help keep guard. In fact, one of their jobs was to put to death any who approached the Lord. And just as fire consumed Nadab and Abihu, so the Levites were to keep out all that might defile the tabernacle. And so their function was to serve the priests. And next week we're going to say that they're basically tasked with carrying the tabernacle. And that's next week. So. And their families, they're all descendants of Levi. So, here's what we have. We have priests who serve in the tabernacle offering sacrifices, and we have Levites, and what they do is they help the priests do their job. Because the job of ministering in the tabernacle could not be done just by a few people. It needed quite a bit of help. So, with that, let me just draw a couple of conclusions and maybe a brief summary um, to help keep everything together before we move along. Because I realize this is a rather complex chapter, but if you bear with me, I hope it will make sense. But let's draw some, some uh, uh, a brief summary together as we think about what, what's going on here. The first thing I want to point out is that these people were chosen by God. They were chosen by God. In, they, in this worshiping community, there were those who, um, who 
were chosen to lead the people in worship. That was their job. God had restricted the ministry. God had restricted the ministry leadership. In other words, you might say, well, you know what? I'm going to try to ban. And we're just as important as those folks from the tribe of Levi's. And by the way, what they do, I could do better. I'm much better than Aaron at cutting up a sheep or a goat. And I make way better bread than all of those people from Aaron and the Levi's. Those guys, I'm a way better baker than they are. And I grow the stuff for the infants much better than you. I should be the one doing it. And here's the thing. You may be right. You may even be able to do the job better, but you were restricted. You were not to be part of the Levitical task. You were not to offer sacrifice. You were not to carry the temple. This was a task that was not based on qualification. It was not based on education. It was not based on anything but God's choice. God had restricted the ministry to a select group of people. God determined those who were eligible for office. That's one of our great examples. We see when the kingdom of Israel divided to remember after the death of Solomon, there was a civil war in Israel, and the nation was split in two. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And King Jeroboam, who ruled in the north, didn't want his people going down to Jerusalem to worship there because they just thought, well, they're going to have an alliance, and I want to keep everybody. I want to keep everybody's allegiance to me. And so he set up his own worship. He set up two places of worship, not in Jerusalem, where God has said, this is where I will be worshipped, and not in a tabernacle or a temple. But he set up his own two places. And he set up his own priesthood. And it was much more loose. And it was much more relaxed. In fact, his priests came from all kinds of people who were not Levites. He was innovative in the way he brought about worship. He was creative and he was novel. And yet he was denounced by every prophet of God. Um, and in fact, the denunciation was so complete that his abomination of setting up Creative, non-prescribed worship was so now that he was compared to every other wicked king. If you were wicked, you were compared to King Jeroboam. And so we see that God was to be worshipped in the way that God commanded to be worshipped and by the people who were set apart by him. The first thing we should take note of, the second thing we maybe take note of, is the variety of ministries that we see here in, um, we see going on. The Levites were tasked with carrying and maintaining things like poles and curtains and furniture. That was our job. They maintained furniture. They carried tents and fabric. They carried poles and sockets. That was their task, maintaining and carrying these things. Not a very glamorous occupation. And yet, by fulfilling what they were called to do, they were a blessing to the congregation, and they glorified God Almighty. I just want to maybe point out that any service offered to the king is to be done with total dedication. Even the menial tasks, even the carrying of poles and sockets and curtains is to be done with total and complete dedication. We, of course, see this carried over into the New Testament where we see numerous passages regarding the various gifts that God has given to, for his glory and for the good of the church. One of the things that we learn, one of the great teachings of the Reformation is the sacredness of work. Work is sacred. And everyone has some spiritual gift, and nobody has them all. And so the community, the covenant community, needs everybody. So many times people say, I don't get anything out of church. I don't need the church. Well, there are a number of reasons why that would be a false statement. But setting theology aside for just a moment, we can simply say, yeah, but the church needs you. Because not everybody, in, not one person in the church has, is gifted in every area. We need you. So, well, I just don't do anything very that, that much, you know, I just... I just sit at home early and you know, I have time and so I pray. It's like, well, the church needs that. It's not a meaningful task. Do it with other devotion. Maybe come down and clean the church. Do it with other complete joy and devotion. This honors and glorifies God. Aaron cannot do his job effectively without the Levites. The elders in this church cannot do our job effectively without you. It's just utterly impossible. And so, first thing we see is we see God's choice in these people. The second thing we see is that everybody was needed. And the, second, the third thing that I want us to look at is that it is all done God's way. You see, we cannot draw near to God on our own terms. Perhaps the greatest passage in the New Testament, Testament that clarifies this is John 14, 6. Right? I am the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We come how? By Christ. That is God's way. There is no other alternative. There isn't a back door. There isn't a side way. You can't hop the fence. You do not come on your own merits. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one. No one's absolutes. No one comes under the Father but by me. 
Our righteous deeds are insufficient to draw us close to God. We come to God on His terms. And this is perhaps a serious flaw that mankind has today. We make up our own ways of coming to God. We do not have that right. We say, well, God would appreciate this. You see, what we've done with just, with just lowered God to our own making. We've now made God in our image. So let's approve of this, because I would approve of this. But God is holy, and God does what He pleases. And He alone is without sin, and He will always do what is right. In this way, God is other. That is, God is not like us. He does as He pleases, and He always does what is right. And we do not have the right to do as we wish. We do not have the right to say, God, I think you're wrong. I've got a different way, a better way. A more efficient way, a more pragmatic way. A way that would be more inclusive. A way that would bring salvation to way more people. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. We do not have that right. God is other. He is holy, and he tells us how he is to be worshipped. You cannot come near to God casually. Strange fire brought the wrath of God. So that's our first big topic that I want to look at is priests and Levites. I hope you have an understanding of that, because we're going to see that as we go through the book of of numbers. The next big thing I want to address here is this topic of Levites in the first one, because that might have been confusing to you um, as we read this, if you were paying attention. Some of you may have just kind of, your eyes glazed over and your mind went numb when we started talking about the Levites in the first one, but let me explain this. It's rather interesting, at least to me. And so I'm going to explain it. All of Israel belonged to God. In fact, God called Israel my son. He called Israel my firstborn. So everybody, all of the people, all of Israel belonged to God, but the Levites belonged to God in a very unique way. They were they were the substitutes for the firstborn in Israel. They were substitutes for the firstborn in Israel. So you never call in Egypt. Let's go back to the Exodus. In Egypt, the tenth plague. Anybody remember what the tenth plague was? The death of who? The firstborn son. Um, and God then passed over the firstborn. Those who followed God's way, there were no other ways, you, you avoided the plague um, on God's terms. And those who followed God's terms, their firstborn were spared the wrath of God. As a result, the firstborn belonged to God. He said, I redeemed them, I have saved them. They now belong to me. All the firstborn of the children of Israel belong to me. So if you were to have a child, your firstborn male would be dedicated to service, to temple service, to take care of poles and tents and carrying things and stuff like that. But here's what God did. God said, here's what I'm going to do. Instead of everybody's firstborn being dedicated to me, I'm going to separate the Levites. The Levites will, will substitute for the firstborn. And so now all Levites are dedicated to me. Instead of firstborn sons, all the Levites are dedicated to me for service. So this needed to bring about a census. We need to count the number of Levites. How many Levites are there? Because we have to have the same number of Levites as we do for firstborn. The Levites and the number of firstborn have to be the same because God has redeemed the firstborn, and so we need to have the same number of Levites. So they count the Levites, and that's what we saw here. And there were 22,000 Levites. Great. Now what we have to do is we need to count the firstborn. How many firstborn are in the camp? Well, there's 22,273. Uh-oh. We have 273 extra firstborn. What do we do with them? So all the firstborn had been spared needed to substitute, and this was accomplished by our redemption price of five shekels. We don't say one shekel, that's wrong. Five shekels. Redemption must be paid in full. We don't know much about this redemption price. We don't know who paid it, where it actually went, or anything like that. But what God has done now is he said that every firstborn has a substitute Levite who now is taking his place as the firstborn who will now be dedicated to me in service. Right? So that's what we have going on. That's, that's the Levites and the firstborn. And then what we want to look at is the, the arrangement of the Levites, because you'll notice that the Levites are arranged in a very particular order. Having been counted, they're now arranged, they're arranged around the tabernacle. And they basically, they serve as a fence. That's where Batteries did. You know, they're up here in the, in the tabernacle, and in this red area, up here, the Levites surround the tabernacle. And they serve as a fence. They serve as a barrier. That all of the 12 tribes, and all of the tribes that are around, the, the 12 tribes that are around, they cannot approach the tabernacle. They need to go through the Levites first. And anybody who drew near would be put to death. They serve as a fence, and they keep that which is unholy away from God who is holy. If you are unholy, you cannot approach God and live. And so the job of the Levites was to serve as a protection from those who might approach God on their own terms and die. That's what they did. That was their job. Protect the congregation. They're not protecting God. They're protecting the congregation from God. 
couple things that are of interest, at least to me, on the way these are, are arranged. It's got the oldest son of Levi. Levi is not given a place of privilege in this. In other words, God chose the younger over the older, and we see this often in the Bible, that God chooses the younger over the older. This is God's prerogative. What this demonstrates to us is that one standing in the kingdom is by grace and not by merit. But God constantly brings the younger child to the forefront and works through the younger. Even though the younger didn't deserve it, there was no reason for him to have a place of priority, but it was all by God's grace. And so we see the mercy and grace of God. We see God's sovereign choice. You see, it is God who chose Israel from all the nations of the earth. It is God who designated where each tribe is going to be positioned. It was God who chose the Levites to serve. It was God who chose Aaron to be high priest. And it was God who chose that the older would serve the younger. This is a community chosen by God, ordered by God, and the proper response is to follow what God has said because God is good and His ways will bring joy and goodness to His chosen people. So I hope that gives you some basic understanding of Numbers chapter 3, what I want to do now is just provide perhaps some lessons that we learn from the Levites. Lessons that we learn from the Levites because I think there's a lot of application for us today. There's a lot of continuity between this community, this wilderness community, and these people today. And the first big lesson we learned from the Levites we touched on already, and then number one is that worship is not to be taken lightly. Worship is not to be taken lightly. First of all, it is commanded by God. It is God calls us to worship. And we respond by presenting ourselves before the God who has called us to worship. This is why we begin our church service with a call to worship. This is God calling his people to gather in his place. I've been in church in the past, and he just said, he's like, let's invite God to join us in worship today. It's backwards. Totally backwards. God's inviting us. We come at his bidding. We gather in this place, this building we call the church. But the church gathers in this building at God's bidding on the Lord's day. It is commanded by God to gather together in the prayer and present ourselves before the God of the universe. Oh, my. When we gather, we stand before God who is with us. He is in our midst. We stand on holy ground. Because God has called his people to gather for worship. Worship is not just something we take lightly. That's number one. And under the idea of worship is not to be taken lightly. The second thing under this big topic is that worship is divinely ordained. Worship is divinely ordained. God has spoken clearly on this matter. We are not called to be creative or novel. We are called to order ourselves around what God has called us to do. And so here's some of the things that are non-negotiable that need to happen in a worship service. When God has given us, when God has invited us, God has told us this is what you need to do when you come into my presence. Number one, prayer. This is in no particular order, but I'll put prayer first. We should pray. And you'll notice in our service is really not prayer. We've got an opening prayer, prayer of adoration, prayer of confession, prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of affirmation, and all kinds of prayers. Pastoral prayer. It's like, oh, we're praying again. We're called to pray. A while back I was convicted, and I thought to myself, I think I spend more time on the announcements than I do in prayer in our corporate public worship. I think that's a problem. It's my own conviction. We pray because God has called us. When you gather, you pray. The other thing you do is you read scripture. God tells us that the reading of scripture in the corporate public worship is um, one of the things that you ought to do. We proclaim the scripture in that in the sermon. In scripture. We sing. We are required to sing. The Bible says, sing their psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so we sing. I think our songs need to be meaningful. They need to affirm our belief. They need to affirm our belief, affirm our faith. So we sing about things that we believe, how great the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretched treasure. Behold, I hear my mocking voice call out among the sinners. We sing. We sing our faith. We sing meaningful songs. We administer the ordinances. We, we administer both baptism and the Lord's Supper. This is commanded by God. This is what we do. It is the gospel visualized. We receive it. We receive his blessing and benediction. Bless the Lord. And so, um, so we come in. God, we proclaim. We, uh, we acknowledge that God has called us here to, to come and worship. We come and do so by um, praising him, thanking him, putting him first. In other words, the, the service points to God. Everything we do, I believe, needs to point to God. I don't believe that we are called to entertain. I don't think it is our, it is our call to be innovative. Job is to point to God. So even if we were to go away with a limited budget, we would not have a Broadway type production in our church service. Broadway productions are fine for Saturday evenings or Monday nights or whatever. But they do not belong in the worship service where God is to be focused. 
when we be God's focused. I believe that elders, like the Levites, have to guard that worship. I think the congregation um, can assist and should assist in that, but ultimately the leadership should guard the worship to make sure that it is God-centered. doesn't mean you have to do your worship service exactly like we do it. You don't have to have the exact same liturgy. There's nothing holy about our liturgy, but I think those components need to be there. Worship is commanded by God and it is divinely ordered by God. It is also, I believe, to be prioritized. And so, let me maybe step on a toe or two. It is scheduled just that we arrive to worship on time. There's a greater attention to being punctual, punctual to our earthly bosses. I'm going to be late to church. And I know, I know life can conspire. <laughs> Things fall apart on Sunday morning. This is not some sort of legalism that, oh, you're a minute late. I'm just saying, do we order our, our Sunday morning, our Lord's Day mornings around? How do we make sure that we arrive in a way so that we can be part of the worship service? That's all. And, and I would say, also, that our hearts should be prepared to meet with God. Because our natural state tends to move God to the fringes of our lives. And so I think we can... God, the center of our worship takes some effort. So this is why sometimes you uh, see it on Facebook or email. I will say, here's the text we're reading. I would ask you to read it. Here's the songs we're going to be singing. Listen to them. Prepare your heart. Prepare your heart on Saturday. That doesn't mean you can't go on media or take prepare your heart beforehand. Read the text. Be familiar with what we're going to talk about. Be ready with a word of encouragement to your brothers and sisters. Think about somebody you might bless. Be prepared to worship God. Like I said, it may take effort because our life is so putting God on the fringes so often times. But God... He's commanded that we gather in his presence. He has told us what we are to do. Let's make that a priority. Here's another lesson I think we learned from the Levites, and that is joy. This has been a rather austere message, um, probably a pretty serious message, but let me just say that I think serious worship should not be devoid of joyful worship. In fact, I would think that that is as big of a crime or as big as a fault um, as coming to God on our own terms, coming to God without joy. The Levites were a regular reminder of God's grace and redemption. The Levites were a reminder of God's grace and redemption. Remember, how did we get the Levites? Their very existence pointed to the fact that God had redeemed his people from Israel, from Egypt, and that his people did not experience the plague of the firstborn. Their existence points back to an event where God saved his people. So in the midst of the congregation was a group of Levites who were a permanent reminder that God saves his people. And God is faithful to save his people every day was a reminder that God redeems his people. This should be done every day. You should wake up and say, hey, look at the Levites. Woo-hoo. Joy that we are saved people. When God rescued his people, there was a cost. There was the cost of redemption, either a Passover lamb, or a five-shekel redemption price, but regardless, redemption came at a price. Nobody got redeemed for free. The Passover lamb with a redemption price. The Passover lamb died for their redemption, and the Levites lived in obedience to God. And we should see the continuity there in the New Testament, that our Passover lamb has also been sacrificed. Our redemption is in Christ. Christ lived as the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His redemptive ministry was not, not this his redemptive ministry was not to keep unqualified people out of God's presence, but to provide the holiness necessary to bring sinners into God's presence. Let me repeat that. Christ's redemptive ministry was not to keep unqualified people out of God's presence, but was to provide the holiness necessary to bring sinners into God's presence. So instead of killing people, he came close. God made people holy. How? Through Christ. Christ now is our righteousness. He is our holiness. It is outside of us so we can come into the presence of God through Christ and not have to fear dying because Christ is righteousness. He has made us holy and we can approach God without fear. Jesus turns unqualified, unholy people into those who are not qualified to stand in the presence of God. What a great promise that is. I can stand in the presence of God. And in fact, many of the benedictions in the Bible are to now to him who is able to make you stand in his presence. You're able to stand in the presence of the Holy God and not die because of Christ. God, his holiness hasn't changed. He hasn't lowered his holiness quota. He's just as holy. And we can stand in his presence. And on that last day, when you breathe the last breath, and, and on the day of, the, of judgment, you will stand before God, uncondemned, holy, blameless because of Christ. Because you came by the way, you did not come on your own terms, you came on God's terms. You see, without perfect righteousness, we will not see God. The door of that new Jerusalem is guarded from those who might seek to enter on their own terms. But those who come through Christ will be received and welcomed. So let me conclude with just a few things, and then we'll sing our final song. 
We, like the Levites, are called to glorify God in joyful service. We are to be a testimony of the redemption Christ paid. As Levites, we will glorify God in joyful service. Our job is not to say, keep out lest you die, but come, for Christ has died. And Christ is risen again, and Christ is seated in heaven in places where he lives and reigns forever and ever. Don't stay away because you might die. Come, because Christ has died in your place. And has satisfied all the requirements of the law, so that you can now come into the presence of God. I would ask you then, when we come, we come at God's bidding. We come into his presence, and this should be a great opportunity to lift our hearts and our voices in worship. Father, we thank you this day for your love and kindness. We ask, Lord God, that you would guide us and protect us. We thank you for the righteousness of Christ. We thank you that he is holy, and he has made us holy. In fact, he calls us saints, holy ones. That's our title, holy ones. We can enter into the presence of a holy God without fear. Let's prioritize that. Have mercy upon us this day, and keep us in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing joyfully. As we uh, prepare to depart, um, we're going to bless one another. I think I have a blessing there that I'd like us to, uh, to read. And do we have that? There it is. So let's go ahead and bless one another as we leave. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Amen.